1: Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to CMO Moves. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Jones, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of H&R Block. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for joining me.
0: Nadine, how are you?
1: I'm great, thanks. And I'm so excited you could join me today. You know, CMO Moves is all about amazing role models for the industry and great leaders. And my goodness, you are a legend for the work that you did at Target as CMO, and now have transitioned into a CEO role at h and Block. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey and the decision points that you had to make along the way
0: well it's a long journey, so i 'll try not to you know to give you all the way from from birth in West Virginia and where I got started but i'm thrilled to be here i think is the is the starting point i mean i I joined h and r block in october I was officially announced in August of last year, and I was really lucky to have a few different options of what I wanted to do next and it was really funny because when I when I was first called about H&R Block, it kind of caught me off guard, to be honest. It, it's not an industry that I have. Uh, I'm not a tax guy. Um, I didn't aspire to be a tax guy. And so when I first got the call, I had this funny reaction with the recruiter, which was, you know, my name's Jeff Jones. You clearly have the wrong Jeff Jones. It's such a common name. You know, how did you get to me? And it was a wonderful first conversation. And really from the beginning... I just had a sense that there was opportunity here. And the more I learned about the company, you know, it's a very well-known brand. Some would say it's a great brand, very well trusted, lots of clients, tens of millions of Americans turned to HR block every year for help. So there were all these things about being here that were attractive to me. And then I also saw the potential. And without having begun, I just recognized that for all of its strengths there was still opportunity to improve its relevance to be better operators to modernize our capabilities and so for me that's what attracted me to this role and so I've been here now for several months and you know we can talk more about what I've been up to but being here actually became quite an easy decision but if you rewind a little further in history I spent just a little under seven months at Uber. And prior to that, uh, I was at Target, and you know, we won't go too far back in history, but each of those experiences really helped prepare me to be where I am today. I was very, very lucky at Target. I was the third chief marketing officer in the history of the company. I followed a legendary CMO named Michael Francis, and I joined a company that fundamentally believed that marketing really mattered. You're one of the top three or four people in the company that really drives growth in the future. And so I certainly was given a wonderful opportunity. And when I look back on it, I think I made the most of the time I was there. It's a place where marketing is about being a business leader. It's about driving growth. It's not just about creativity and advertising. Obviously, that's an important part of of the target brand. But when I look back about my time there, the team that I was able to build, every single one of my direct reports was fundamentally better than me at their thing. I'm enormously proud of the team there. I'm really proud of shaping culture and modernizing the company and how we viewed things. I was asked to help the company lead its way out of the data breach, so an enormous set of experiences. And I ultimately had an amazing boss named Brian Cornell, who is Target's chairman and CEO, who taught me a lot and entrusted me with a lot. And that experience helped me grow on a really, really big stage. I ultimately left Target to go to Uber and I was, I was attracted by the opportunity of being the first president of ride sharing for that company, to be really at the center of the future and to do it on a global scale that is unlike many companies. And, and so I made the move. And even though it didn't work out the way I had hoped it would, I have absolutely no regrets for that experience. And so now here I am today at H&R Block.
1: What an amazing journey that is. And there's so much in there that I want to ask you about. How about we start with talking a little bit more about your role at H&R Block as CEO? And then... Back me up a little bit and share with me, if you could, how you were able to connect the dots between your role as a CMO to take on this new role as CEO.
0: So, when you think about kind of what I've been up to the last five or six months, I think there are probably three or four big priorities. The first one is so I joined in October, which in our business is before tax season. I think tax season is January through the end of April in, in general. So I joined in October, and really clearly priority number one was learn as much as possible to ensure you can deliver a successful upcoming tax season. And so that's about what I called business immersions, diving really deep into all the subsets of what we do, building a baseline understanding so once the season began, I could evaluate how good are we at execution. So that was a big priority. Second priority was beginning the work to develop our long-term enterprise strategy, which was kind of one of the key things the board hired me to do. And we spent the first several months, in my words, getting really, really granular about the business. I think the team would say going faster than they were comfortable, uh, being more analytical than they had been in the past, and just trying to get all of us on the same page about where are we, You know, the strengths, the opportunities, just a baseline level set of all the drivers of any business. And so we've done that work. I think a third really important priority is I put them all together, talent, culture, and capabilities. And so oftentimes when you're developing strategy, I think hopefully you're externally focused, you're thinking about your consumer, you're understanding capabilities of the business, how do you connect those two things for growth? And I've always believed that talent, culture, and capabilities are the greatest enablers of strategy. And so it was important for me, honestly, as a a first-time public CEO, entering a brand new category, a brand new organization, to send the signal from day one that talent, what's that mean? So we have to continue to raise the bar on performance. And how do we do that? Well, it's by developing the people we have. It's by attracting the right people from the outside in the right places. So talent's very important. Culture, you know, it means a lot of different things to people. And, and for me, culture is simply the way people behave. And so what is it about our behaviors that are helping us grow? What is it about our behaviors that are slowing us down? And my language for that is, what is it about the culture we're going to cherish and what is it about the culture that needs to change? And again, I believe as a leader, it's kind of a cop-out if you walk in and believe everything that isn't yours is bad or wrong. And so I'm really intentional about trying to celebrate the things that I know are amazing here and that make h and Block a very successful company. And at the same time, the things that are keeping us from realizing our full potential. And then capabilities are simply you know, what are the things we should be able to do to accelerate our growth? So talent, culture, and capabilities are all, you know, the third big priority. And the fourth one is you just put it in the category of board relationships and governance. And I now have a bunch of bosses, not just one. And it was important to me that as a new CEO replacing someone who retired after six years, that I start to establish my own trust and cadence and way that I lead the company and that the board supports. And so being very intentional about board relationships, board meetings, board governance, board communication, all of those things is what I called my fourth big priority. And that's really how I've been spending my time in those four areas over the last five or six months.
1: Okay. Wow. That's, that's super interesting. And again, just generates way more questions than we probably ever have time for. But If I think about those buckets, that represents all the things that a CMO needs to do too, but at a different scale. So would you say it's stepping into a larger forum with more pieces to manage? Or were there fundamental things that you think are net new that you might want to think about if you're trying to get ready for a CEO role?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So going back to those four things, the the first big one is you know, for me, it was learning the business to execute. But in general, it's execute your core business. That That's number one. And so every member of the team plays a functional role in, in ensuring that we're delivering what we promise for our business, you know, for a tax season. I think the shift that CMOs can start to think about is a lot of CMOs view their role as I'm in charge of marketing communications. And I think the more CMOs are able to be really the customer champion inside their organization learn how to connect the business strategies with the customer and be really really adept at talking about the business with any member of your leadership team the more you go from being the words and pictures person to somebody who's really providing strategic value to the company in the second big bucket enterprise strategy that's something that I in my role as CEO have to drive for the company, ensure that we're being objective, thinking big enough, worrying about execution, all those things. As a CMO, I think when you're invited to have that seat at the table, the biggest role that you can play is being the voice of the customer. And again, the the stereotype that I see CMOs playing is they're the brand creative person. And frankly, I've met CMOs that, that's what they love to do and you know, good for them. They don't they don't have different aspirations. And so that makes their role very, very clear. But for those CMOs that have aspirations to run a business or run a division, I think you increasingly have to see your job as more than the brand creative person. You have to be a business problem solver. You have to think about growth. You have to understand how your company makes money. You have to understand your customer needs and opportunities. All of those things start to round out your language and your capabilities as a CMO. And then talent, culture, and capabilities, that third bucket, I put all three of those things in the third bucket, every member of any leadership team has to play a role in all three of those areas. As a CEO, what I'm trying to signal to the company is those are important at the enterprise level and instill a belief in the team that we can't achieve our strategy. We can't achieve our outcomes if we don't put talent, culture, and capabilities at the middle of everything we do. That fourth bucket of board, again, on on some leadership teams, CMOs have board roles. They attend board meetings. They present at board meetings. The unique role as a CEO is obviously, I'm not the chairman of the company. I have an independent chair. But when that board meeting starts, people turn to me. And so with my chairman shaping the agenda, driving the right kind of conversation, that's probably the most unique shift in being a CEO, at least versus being a CMO at Target.
1: So all four buckets are exceptionally important. And thanks so much for laying them out as clearly as you did. You know, I have been so fortunate on this podcast that I get to talk to a lot of CMOs who are very active across all four of those areas. And I'd love to zero in on one of the four, because it's one that really excites me. Uh, and that is talent capabilities and culture. You know, I believe after everything I've been part of in the last few years, that if a CMO is not fully immersed in all three of those things, then it's going to be very challenging for them to ensure that the brand grows in the way that they intend it to grow. Um, Talent, culture and capabilities, whether it's uh, soft skills or hard skills or team dynamics are all critical for ensuring that the brand is growing on the inside and being represented in the right way to the outside. So how would you think about the fact that a CMO maybe doesn't own it today, but how are they not responsible for it in some way, shape or form?
0: Yeah, I just, I I think that those three topics, talent, culture, and capabilities are all too big to have one person who's in charge of them. And I, I just have a belief that when a team is operating at its best, so a leadership team, every member of the leadership team believes all three are important, is aligned to what each of them mean, what we're trying to accomplish. And then their respective roles ensures first that their teams are meeting all the expectations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. And when you think about now in your role as CEO, do you think it is easier now for you to bring all these functions together, things like marketing and HR, which sometimes in the past may have been considered disparate, but really need to join forces, especially around aligning communications on the internal side and also externally?
0: Well, if I get to make a little pitch for the fact that I'm actively searching for a CMO right now, I would say... One of the things I did not have to do here was bring together internal and external communication. It's already how the company viewed it structurally. And so I didn't have to move those things together under one leader. That's already how we're structured. I think in any organization, there's the ongoing work, you know, structure is one thing, but you can't solve everything from org structure. So then you have to have Willing people who respect each other's capabilities coming together with common goals to solve problems. And I would say, from what I've seen so far, that's how the team likes to operate.
1: That's cool. And when we're talking about the behavior, which drives the culture, can you give some examples about specific behaviors that enable people to be the best? Like, what would be a certain behavior that helps create and fuel more of an innovative environment or collaborative environment?
0: Yeah. Well, it'll, it might sound trite, but I, I really believe it and I try to role model it. I mean, one is the tone that I try to set about the fact that I don't know everything. And so my success is dependent upon the quality of my team and I require them to push me. And I have a, a way that I think about the leadership model that, that I try to instill the old way I call command and control the way I try to lead is called a connected leadership model. And that basically means while I may have a title different than other people and a certain kind of accountability to our shareholders, we can't go as fast as we need to. We can't be as innovative as we need to if every decision has to be made by me. So a behavior is I ask a lot of questions and I try to instill in people the sense of, you know the answer, you have accountability to make the decision, how can I help you, as opposed to, hey, here's what I want to know on every single project. And then you start to create a sense of, well, if Jeff doesn't tell us what to do, then we can't move. So a connected approach to leadership has a lot of behaviors. That's one example. I think another example is, I have this expression, which is, when you feel resistance, teach. And I first used that expression at Target. And what it means to me is I like people who get out of their swim lanes. And I like when people learn from each other about what works and why we do things. And so a lot of times when a peer asks another peer about their business, if the instinct is be defensive, guard the knowledge, protect your turf... That just isn't going to work on my team. So when you feel resistance teach, that, that to me says you have an obligation to make sure that the people around you are learning from your expertise and that you're not hoarding and guarding information. And that's very much a behavior that I expect. So those are, those are a couple examples of real behaviors that try to drive a different kind of connectivity with each other, which I think ultimately drives more accountability and a faster pace.
1: Those are two really good ones. And I keep writing faster than I can think with all the great things that you're sharing with me today. It's going to be hard to write your summary and keep it to a few short paragraphs. I'll tell you that much, Jeff. Sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <yeah. laughs> oh, but lots to think about here. Okay. So um, obviously, it is a CEO now, no longer a CMO. What do you miss? Is it hard for you to resist getting too far involved in marketing or, you know, what kind of leader are you looking to come join your team so that you don't feel like you have to do things or that, or maybe they can keep you away from getting involved because you want to?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess the the simple answer is I have a pretty good sense of what excellence should look like, but I have no desire to do their job.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fair enough.
0: (laughs) And, And so... I mean, I think once a marketer, always a marketer. And so now what that means to me is I'm I'm really consumer-centric. So I try to make sure every decision we make is really from the lens of how do we, we call them clients? How do we best serve our clients? As opposed to, you know, what do we think's right? Um, I'm very focused on the analytical understanding of something, not the emotional understanding of something. So I force the team to be, you know, to remove the stories, remove the lore and legend, and let's talk about the facts and the truth and the data and kind of how can we learn from that. There, there are things that, that I'm uh, – to say I miss them is odd because I now have accountability for all of it, but I get as much joy from traveling with our head of U.S. retail and being in our offices and really finding ways to improve how we execute in an H&R Block office – I absolutely love my time with our CFO on how do we think about capital allocation and how does that enable our strategy and meeting our sell-side analysts and helping them understand where we're headed. So I go around the horn with my team and I think that's what I love most about being a CEO is that for good or bad, no matter how a person may view it, I'm 100% accountable for what we do. And the only way I can do that and sleep good at night is to feel like I'm surrounded by the best team possible.
1: Sure, absolutely. So do you want to define what you're looking for here or do you want people just to give you a ring who are qualified for the role?
0: Well, I actually don't want to make this a pitch for the job, (laughs) an advertised commercial. I think the message is I want a modern CMO who can be a contributor and driver of our enterprise strategy who can be better at the function than I am and as someone who is motivated by business challenges, not just motivated by advertising campaigns.
1: That is a great description. and you use the term modern CMO. We'd come back and spend 30 minutes on that, but we're not going to, because I want to talk more about some of the cool things that you're doing right now that are really exciting to you. Do you want to share some of the cool new ideas that you've been working with the team on?
0: Well, I can tell you some things that we're doing right now that I'm I'm really excited about. First of all, we had a really strong start to the tax season. So we had our Q3 earnings call not too long ago. And obviously, there's nothing that makes a team feel more confident than having business success. So we're off to a great start that has good energy in the building. Obviously, I'm new, I'm challenging a lot of things. And so the fact that we're able to do a lot of things at once and execute our season is, is very good. There's a couple areas of product development that are not big volume drivers today, but I'm really excited about one of them we call tax pro review and one we call tax pro go. I won't get uh, too wonky about the tax business, but these are what we call virtual products. So today H&R Block is mainly known for a place you physically go to get help with your taxes. We actually have a very good do it yourself software product that has a great competitive price advantage versus TurboTax. And we're seeing the benefit of that this year. We're stealing share and growing business, which is awesome. In between those two things, tax pro review is, I think I want to do taxes myself. I start online. I get stuck. I need help. I can get help from a tax pro without it being kind of, they do my taxes for me. The other side of that is, I don't want to do my taxes myself. I want someone to completely do everything for me. But for some reason, I either don't want to come sit down at an office for an hour. or I don't have time to do that. So I can basically upload all of my tax documents. And an H&R Block tax pro does your taxes for you, but you never have to go anywhere. And so that starts to represent a glimpse at the future and all the ways that h r Block can serve clients more than we do today. And I'm really excited about what we've done this year and the early signs and feedback we're getting from our clients.
1: Oh, that, that does sound super exciting. And, and how timely, too, because you're now, I'm really thinking about April 15th coming very soon. I got to get on it.
0: Well, and keep in mind, you know, for a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast, they think about their taxes as an April event. But for a lot of America and a lot of our clients, their taxes are done. And that's a January, early February event. So there's really kind of two ends of the tax season, if you will. And we're about to race to the finish.
1: Okay. So I just exposed myself as not ahead of the game, which is uh, totally my style. But I no, no,
0: no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you might be a procrastinator. I won't comment on that. But you may have just exposed <laughs> that you have a little more complex situation and it took a little more time to get all your documents together and you're, you're normal, don't worry.
1: Oh, good. See, that's the marketer coming out of you. It can me sound better than just the procrastinator that I probably am. Nah, I know um, better. No, hey man, it's complex. There's, it, my life is complex. I'm going with that. That's what I'm going with and I'm sticking to it. And I've only got one more question for you because we are coming up to the end. But before I ask you that question, the floor is all yours. Is there anything in the world that you would want to share with someone who would like to follow in your footsteps or follow your path to getting to where you are today? Any lessons learned, any rules you broke, any big tips?
0: Well, gosh, I mean, you save that for the last minute. That's also uh, its own topic. I mean, I guess what I would say is I didn't wake up as a kid and say, I want to be a CEO. I grew up in a part of West Virginia. I was raised by entrepreneurs that were uneducated, I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. So I didn't start on a path knowing this is what I wanted to do, but I did do something really early in my career. And I will name this person named Michael Wood, who was kind of one of the most important first bosses I had at Leo Burnett, where I started my career. And Michael helped me frame my career. And he helped me write something down that to this day is still relevant. And he basically said to me, and it was in the context of at that moment in time, the agency was going to do some layoffs. And of course, you know, you're terrified about what that meant. Michael Wood said two things to me. One was, listen, you're probably going to get fired in your career. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Job security is knowing you're good enough to get another job. And by the way, over my career, I've taken risks in my career. I've done things that others didn't want to do. I've been willing to move to places. And so there are things I've done that there's no question have helped me gain experiences that helped me get where I am now. But the other thing that I did with Michael was lay out kind of a map of my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And my 20s, Michael helped me say, it's all about learning. That's it. And so many people early in your career, all you're focused on is, you know, why'd they get promoted? Not me. How much do they make? Not me. I want to jump ship to make more money. And Michael just said, listen, you're probably going to be working for 50 years. Who knows? But that's that's probably going to happen. So your 20s are just about learning as much as you can. Your 30s are about putting yourself in a position to leverage that learning and demonstrate you know how to do some things. Your 40s, you know, I wrote down, I wanted my 40s to be about scale. So how do I do what I've learned how to do at scale? That, by the way, was a big part of when I went to Target. I used to say my 50s were about teaching. And I had this perception in my 20s that when you're 50, you're done, you're retired, you teach. Well, now I'm 50 and I realize I'm just getting started. But I, I kind of learned that my 50s are about operating a business my 60s are about investing and advising and so i just have a i have a map in my head and again there've been twists and turns and things have gone wrong and i've been fired and all that stuff has happened but it's just a long game so that's helped me think about my career now my my advice to someone is not map out your career in decades i think my advice is have a general sense of what you know you love to do be an insatiable learner be willing to take risks, be crazy curious, and enjoy the ride. And I very much am enjoying my ride.
1: Wow, that is so cool. I I can already see a feature film coming that's going to be the life of Jeff Jones. And I know somebody who's going to want to shoot it. So we're going to talk about that later because that's a really good way to think about things. And that's so helpful. I mean, you know, I've talked to a couple people now like Greg Welsh and Musa Tariq from Ford and, uh, Mary Beach, I just had on the show and everyone's talking about career mapping and are so many ways to do it. And I, I really like your recipe. So thanks for that, Jeff. Absolutely. Great. Okay. So you're absolutely right. I would want to come back and, and do another half hour show on that. So maybe there'll be around to one of these days, but my last question for you, if you were not a CEO or a CMO or doing anything that you're doing today, what would you do?
0: Very easy answer. It'd be one of two things, my absolute two passions. Uh, I would be scrambling to make the PGA tour or I would be a fashion photographer.
1: So would you show up at the PGA tour in some really cool new uh, funky fashion?
0: No, no. I want to be the photographer, not the person in the fashion.
1: Well, yes, I know, but you might be inspired, right? You know, you got to pull it all together.
0: Oh, that would be, that would be a bad look. I'm, I'm pretty sure. But those are my those are my two passions. It's, you know, if it's not work or family, uh, those are the two things I love to do. And I fantasize someday about having my own gallery show and letting that side of my brain loose again.
1: Okay, so I can totally understand that you probably play a lot of golf. But help me understand a little bit more on this fashion photography. I mean, do you have an active collection of photographs that you've taken and what what kinds of things inspire you?
0: Yeah. So I, if I go all the way back to high school, I was a really avid photographer and again, not to go into all the details about it, but when I went to college, I went to college, the first person in my family to go to college didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had this crazy passion for photography and I had someone at the University of Dayton kind of the first month of college asked me a few questions. And ultimately what I learned was I had this business orientation because I grew up with entrepreneur parents. I had this crazy curiosity about why things happened and why people do what they do. And that could have led me down a path in psychology. And then I had this, this talent and passion for photography. Those three things together, the creativity, the curiosity, and the business orientation are why I pursued advertising in my early part of my career and then ultimately marketing and now what I'm doing today. So that's, that's where the passion for photography comes from.
1: Wow. That's really neat. Okay. I could do a half an hour show on that as well, but unfortunately we are out of time and Jeff, I thank you so much for joining me today to share all your excellent advice for anyone who is either an aspiring CMO an aspiring CEO, or just wants to be a great leader. So thank you.
0: My pleasure. Great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk to you too.